About a year ago in April, when uh, our worship leader, Justin Jeremias, left to go to Georgia, we were looking at, who knows how long a stretch without a full-time worship leader. And so we prayed that, that God, in the time that it took for us to find that person, would provide for us worship leadership. And he has done an incredible job. And I just want to thank you very much for being a part of that. Uh, that God has, has certainly blessed us in the last year by uh, sending us some very gifted, talented, and spirit-filled people. And uh, please uh, just say thank you. Also, um, Andy uh, Walker, his uh, official starting date is April the 1st, but he's going to actually start a month early, not full-time, but filling in uh, starting next Sunday. So he'll be here uh, from then on. So... Hope you'll make him feel welcome as well. Uh, another thing that, that happened yesterday over in the, in the D.C. area, actually it's in Virginia, I think, technically, uh, Celebrate Recovery had a one-day event for a bunch of folks on the East Coast, and we had almost 40, 47, almost 50. We had, so we had about 5% of the people that were there. That's incredible. It was uh, over in the D.C. area, just a wonderful one day of, of worship and training and, and just encouraging and, and all sorts of stuff. And three van loads of people from Celebrate Recovery at Clarksburg Baptist Church went, and I think that's uh, incredible as well. Something I learned yesterday, and this isn't to compare, but do you know that, that Clarksburg Baptist Church's Celebrate Recovery is larger than celebrate recovery at First Baptist Church in Orlando, Florida. I just find that just <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's not about numbers. It's not about numbers. But when I, when I read that statistic, I thought, man, that's, that's, that's incredible that, that God uh, has blessed us in an incredible way with that ministry. And if you don't know what I'm talking about and like some more information, Chrissy, wave your hand. Uh, Chrissy is uh, one of the co-directors, and she would love to tell you how you can become involved. In that we've been talking about Noah actually this is only the second week the life of Noah and we have the ark here and and everything for our uh, enhancement in, in our worship and and I understand it's going to be changing a little bit as we go through this but we started last week in, in the sixth chapter of Genesis and the idea that that God looks down on his creation and he sees the corruption and the violence and he sees the evil and the and the deviance that, that's going on in, in the world, and God not only sees the actions, but God also perceives what's going on in the heart. So God, when he looks down, not only sees actions, but also sees the heart and sees motive. And so God is very displeased, to say the least, with the, what's going on in his creation. So God decides that he is going to destroy his creation. He's got every living thing on the face of the earth, except one. God finds Noah, and Scripture tells us that, that Noah found favor, or grace, depending on your translation, in the eyes of the Lord. In a totally corrupt world, Noah stood out as someone who lived in the way that God wanted him to live, who was faithful, who was obedient. And as we ended up last week, not only did we find Noah living uh, the, the life that God wanted him to in that very corrupt society. But we found later in the New Testament, Jesus actually made a reference back to Noah. And, and Jesus said, when I come again, at the, when I come back to earth, that the earth is going to be like it was in the days of Noah. Maybe not exactly 
in that particular sense of the things that are going on, though there's some striking similarities. But the idea that people are just going back about their business oblivious to what's going on. And so for us, I think it's important for us to be obedient, to live godly lives. That's certainly important for us. But also I think it's important for us to be uh, going out and telling people about the good news and telling people about Christ and telling people how he can come and change their lives so that they too can be prepared when he comes again. We're looking at um, actually where God takes the first step to follow through on his promise and Noah also takes the first step of being obedient and being a part of God's story. And it's in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. It says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Again, we need to point out, Noah was not perfect. He was not perfect by any means. But Noah had this sincere desire to follow God and to be obedient to Him. And he was a living example in his generation. But verse 10 says that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Scripture says Noah was a righteous man, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what about his family? Uh, were they going to be destroyed? Were they not living like they should? Well, the answer to that question comes in chapter 7, but there's some clues to what the answer to that question is that we find here just in the names. We read passages of Scripture like this all the time, and we come to these odd names, and we just eh, pass over them and read them and, and go on. But there's some great clues here. Shem. Shem's name means name. Go figure. Shem, the oldest of Noah's sons, was married, childless, and 98 years old. When this takes place. 98. But after the flood. God would bless him. And from the line of Shem. Would come Abraham. And the covenant. You, you've heard the term Semitic. Talking about Semitic languages. And, and if you're anti-Israel. People will refer to you as anti-Semitic. The, the term Semitic. Actually comes from Shem's name. Then you have Ham. Ham means hot. Odd name. But after the flood, Noah would curse Ham's son, Canaan. And now from his line would come the Canaanites, the Egyptians, and the Cushites. And if you wonder about the curse, actually the curse comes to pass. Because later in Scripture we find that the Jews conquered the Canaanites, who were descendants of Ham. And then we have my favorite, the youngest, Japheth. Now, his name, I love this, it means, may he have space. But here's why. He's the youngest of the three, but his descendants would occupy the lands around the Mediterranean. And before it was over with, the descendants of, of Japheth would spread all the, through the whole continent of Europe and a good part of Asia. Here's the point of all of this. God has not sent the flood yet. The destruction has not happened. But even before the destruction happened, God has a plan, a very specific plan, to repopulate the world. Even before he destroys it, God always has a plan. In verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. 
for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. This is where God states his intentions to Noah. He speaks to Noah here first time and tells him what he's going to do, that he's going to destroy the earth. And, and he says the inhabitants of the earth, but he also says the earth. And so you wonder, well, how is he going to destroy the earth? Well, think about it. You think about just when we have flooding around here. Well, imagine if the whole earth were covered in water for the period of time it was covered in water. Imagine all the destruction that that would cause just from being saturated with water for that amount of time. So the the idea here is that that not only is life going to be snuffed out, but also the earth itself is just going to be severely modified because of this flood. Then in verse 14, he says to Noah, Now make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. The proportions of the ark are kind of like a modern cargo ship. If you really want to know how big it was, actually, if you translate the cubits into feet, it was 450 feet long. That's a, that's a big boat. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. had three decks And it was an opening for ventilation or maybe for some other reason. Who knows? Now, if you look at our our ark here, actually the window at the top, I am told, was built to the exact specifications. So even though the ark may not quite be as big as the original one, that that part is. Imagine, though, a a boat that big, and and that's the the opening. And, And who knows? We can only speculate why. Maybe it was because God was just shielding them from all the destruction and all the cries and all the, the death that would be occurring outside the ark. Maybe that's the reason. Who knows? But we'll find out another use for it as we go on. Verse 17 says, this is God speaking again, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life, the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. God said he's going to do it. He said he's going to destroy it. But this is the first time where he says how he's going to destroy it. First time he mentions the flood. And it's interesting to me that he gives Noah the instructions to build the ark before he tells him why. Imagine that. Look, Noah, I want you... Now, you're going to look foolish doing this, probably, Noah, but I want you to go out and build this enormous boat. Here the, here's the, uh, the dimensions. Go out and build it. And what would we do? <laughs> well, why? Why, Lord? Right, what, what am I building this for? I, I need some more information. No, 
Noah's so obedient to God that, that God trusts him with telling him, here's what I want you to do. He does tell him why. He says, look, I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to bring a flood, and I'm going to destroy all this. But the idea that, that God is, is, knows that Noah is so faithful that he gives him the instructions of what he wants him to do before he actually tells him why he needs to do it. But he says in verse 18, he says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. A covenant is an agreement, and the Hebrew word that's used here also can mean to purify or to cleanse. And it signifies that with a covenant, there has to be a purifier or a cleanser. And in, in this instance, you want to think of it in the case that God is, is pure holiness, and we are sinful. And so in order for this holy God to enter into a covenant with sinful man, there has to be some sacrifice. There has to be a purifier. And that's why you'll find with covenants that there is a, an animal sacrifice. There is some sacrifice before God can enter into that covenant. And actually the word that's used for covenant not only means agreement, but it also can refer to the sacrifice that's made for that. But we're going to talk about the specifics of the covenant in a few weeks, or a couple of weeks actually. Verse 19 says, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird and of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. It's amazing, isn't it? that before the flood, God has a restoration plan for mankind through the sons of Noah. Well, here, he's got a restoration plan for the other living things as well. It's amazing. But there's something he leaves out. You know what it is? Fish and sea creatures. They're not mentioned. They're not mentioned, They're not, and he's not instructed to take them on the ark. And then when we get to the list of things that died later on, they're not on the list. Well, short version. The fossil record does show that there was extensive destruction of sea life, marine life, during the flood. But not total. And the idea that God, God didn't recreate fish after the flood. God created the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. So God's not going to go back and recreate something. But some of them survived. We don't know how. We don't know the details. But here's the important part of this, is that God, in the midst of this destruction, has a restoration plan. And once again, in verse 22, we find that Noah was obedient. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah's obedient to the point of precision. Noah doesn't say, well, okay, I'm going to do some of it my way and some of it God's way. It says here that Noah did everything just as, exactly, precisely as God commanded him. And think about it. Here's the choice. Do it your way and there's judgment or be obedient and do it my way, God says, and there's salvation. So what does Noah do? He's obedient. He does everything just as God commanded <clears throat> but let's stop and think about this for a minute. We look over and over in this story here, 
And God is always talking about destruction. I'm going to wipe this out. I'm going to destroy this. And so when we look at this story, it's easy for us to look at this story and to think of it as a story of God's wrath and God's destruction and, and the punishment for the sins of the way that the people <clears throat> sins of the way the people were living. It's easy for us to look at that as a story of destruction. But think about this. Let's read between the lines. God says he's going to wipe from the face of the earth the human race. That's what God says. But Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God has this plan that's going to repopulate the earth through his sons. God says he's going to wipe out everything that breathes. But God tells Noah to bring animals and creatures on the ark. So he has a plan to repopulate that as well. God says everything on the earth will perish, but God makes a covenant with Noah because he has a plan for life after the flood. You see, the focus of this story is not on God's punishment and not on God's judgment and not God's desire to destroy creation. This story is about God saving creation. That's what God's about. Remember, we've been talking about the Bible. The Bible is not the story of God's destruction of his creation. The Bible, from the beginning to the end, is the story of God saving his creation. If you think about it, it's, a, it's an amazing story. That God, the offended party, God is the offended party, but God is always the one who is taking the initiative toward reconciliation. Always. Think about it. Throughout the Old Testament, we find story after story after story of rebellion, of sin, of evil, over and over and over. Just read through the Old Testament. It's almost on every page. People deviating from what God wanted. We find them, it's just all through the Old Testament. God's chosen people. And then we also find stories of judgment because of their actions. We find them either, either perishing by invading armies or, or we find that they were, were carried away into captivity. We find that too. But in every instance, in every instance, we find that God saves a remnant. That the destruction is never complete. Think about it. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it, Sodom and Gomorrah are two terribly evil cities, and God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, God rains down burning sulfur, the Scripture tells us, on Sodom and Gomorrah. But he saves Abraham's nephew, Lot. The prophet Elijah thinks he's the only one serving God. In his generation. And he's depressed. And he's frustrated. And he thinks he's the only one. And God says to an unsure Elijah. He says wait a minute. In this corrupt evil world. I have set aside. I have saved 7,000 faithful followers. 
the prophets over and over and over prophesied destruction. And invading armies invaded God's chosen people. And the ones they didn't kill, they took them away. And they left their land barren. But even one of the prophets who prophesied this destruction says, Jeremiah 23.3 says, I myself, this is God speaking, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. In all of these cases, God was in the saving business. There was a remnant there was a person. There was a group of people. There was always something that God intended to take and to carry on. Remember the scripture we talked about last week? That it's not God's desire that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. That's God's desire. But it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament tells us that there is indeed another judgment coming. Jude 1.15 says that the Lord will come to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all ungodly things they have done. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. But God still has a salvation plan. There is a final judgment coming. There is. That's a certainty. It's coming. But it's not God's desire that any of us get caught up in that final judgment. And so God, again, from the beginning, actually before the beginning of us, had a plan. Here's God's plan. Galatians 1.4 Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us, rescue us from this evil world in which we live. While our sins warrant judgment, God pays the penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sins. And he rises again that we can have eternal life. God, the great creator of the universe, dying for his creation, his rebellious creation. God has always had a salvation plan. God is in the business of saving. It gives him no pleasure to destroy. Hebrews eleven seven, talking about Noah, says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. That, that was the first step for Noah in responding to God. It says in holy fear, Nothing wrong with holy fear. Noah, build an ark and save your family. 
A flood's coming. It's going to destroy everything. Noah, build an ark and save your family. Noah's not afraid of God, but, but God has told Noah what's going to happen if he doesn't follow through. So in holy fear, Noah builds the ark and saves his family. We read in, in Acts in the New Testament, there was a jailer who was sure because of events that he was responsible for is going to lose his life. In fact, he's going to take it. But the prisoners yell out to him. They say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're, we're, we're still here. And this man who, who felt that death was imminent suddenly realizes that, that maybe there's a moment of grace for him. And he says to Paul and Silas, who are two of the prisoners, he says, what must I do to be saved? And here's their response in Acts 16. It says, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. God says to Noah, build an ark and be saved. What does Noah do? Noah builds an ark. God says to the jailer, when he says, what do I do? He says, believe. That's a lot easier than building an ark. He says, believe. And what happens? He believes. And not only does he believe, but his family believes as well. From judgment and destruction to salvation. So what's the first step for us? Very simple. Hasn't changed. Romans 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Here's the promise for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. It's simple. It, it, it's very, very, very simple. It is God's desire to save us. Not that we face judgment. It's the story through the whole Bible. And it was God's plan before mankind. It has always been, from eternity, God's plans. And he offers us the opportunity. He doesn't say build an ark. He doesn't say go do good works. He doesn't say clean up your life. He says believe. Be believe. Believe. Believe that I am who I am and, and did what I said I would do. Because everyone who believes will be saved. That's the first step. Certainly after that first step, we want to grow in our faith and our belief. But God says that there is a judgment coming. It, it's coming. But I want to give you 
That's the simplest way I can think of to avoid that. Simple for us. Very difficult for the God of creation to die for our sins. But he loved us so much that he did so that all is required of us is to believe. If you've not taken that first step, I hope you'll do that today. Let's pray.